Thank you very much. Uh, ooh, this is loud. Uh, can everyone hear me okay? I'm going to guess yes. Okay, good. Okay, so my talk today is about modeling diversity and decision making. And the question I'm interested in is, is how, diver how does difference or diversity contribute to decision making? And I came to this question because of the work that I was doing around my book, The Luck of the Draw, which is investigating the various political uses of random selection. And one of the uses that it often gets cited is the idea of uh, selecting various kinds of political officials, public officials, by lot, uh, practice called sortition. So sort of the way that the uh, jurors are selected by uh, a wider scale. They've been used uh, in that capacity in many times, in many places, and there are many people who, who today who are fans of the practice and see it as a way of reinvigorating democracy. And if you look at the arguments they give for why you ever might want to do something like randomly select uh, public officials, one of the arguments that's often given for it is that, well, it would be a wonderful way of ensuring difference in decision making or diversity. If you bring together a whole bunch of people who would, you know, look like Ireland or who would look like America, that will lead to uh, better decision making than if you just have the same old uh, politicians who've been around uh, forever doing it for you. So. There's this idea that difference is going to lead to better decision making. And I've been trying to get a handle on, well, how exactly does that work? I think that uh, if you want difference, random selection is a great way of getting it. Uh, you know, it's in fact, there's none better. If you know anything about statistical sampling, you know lotteries are a wonderful way if you actually do want to get uh, maximal possible difference. But the question is, okay, um, how and why and when does difference contribute? So it's going to be an important question if you're going to be able to uh, evaluate a proposal like this. So the first question we got to ask uh, is, you know, what do we understand this idea of difference in decision making to mean? And I take difference to involve three different components, which I don't think are often distinguished clearly enough. There's three different parts of what people mean when they talk about ensuring, well, we, we, you know, difference will be reflected on our decision-making bodies. First thing it's going to involve is we're going to have many voices. Uh, we want to have many people involved. You can't have difference with one person. You can't, uh, you know, that's, one person will always be the same as him or herself. You, if you want to have difference, you need to have a lot of different uh, voices represented. You also, if you want to have different, obviously you have to have different voices. Uh, they can't all be identical. Uh, they have to come from different parts of society, different social classes, different ethnicities, different religions, different educational levels, different along as many different dimensions as you think might be relevant. And that, of course, requires you to have many voices. You can't do all that without many voices, but many voices is not enough, enough if they're all homogeneous voices. And the third thing that the ideal of difference usually involves is not just many different voices, but it usually involves talk about proportionately many different voices, proportionately many. So there is this idea that uh, if you are in a country uh, that has many different ethnic groups or many different religious groups, the groups should be present in your decision-making body in something like their proportion of the population. 
So even if you had many different voices, you might lack proportionality. You might have a 400-member legislature, and 100 members of that legislature might be women, and you uh, would say, well, in one respect, you've got many voices, and in one respect, you've got many different voices. De women's voices are definitely there, but they're underrepresented very much in terms of proportionality. They're disproportionately few women, even if there happen to be a, a lot of them. So this ideal of difference, when people talk about a decision-making body that looks like Ireland or something like that, they usually have all three of these things, yeah, there we go, all three of these things in mind uh, at the same time. And I want to suggest here that it's going to be very important to disaggregate them so that we can say, well, what are the respective contributions that could be made to quality of decision-making of having the one versus the other versus the other? And that's going to be needed if you're going to have a picture about just how important is uh, obtaining this full vision of difference. Now, there are a bunch of different ways that people have tried to model collective decision-making in order to try to capture what kind of properties you need in order to have successful collective decision-making. The, uh, the, you know, just to mention two approaches that are different from my approach, uh, if you're familiar with James Sirowiecki's book, The Wisdom of Crowds, uh, Surowiecki has one kind of approach where he draws on a lot of literature to try to look at how uh, having, bringing many different kinds of voices into decision-making can lead to better outcomes. But he is someone, of course, who looks at it from a standpoint that is very much not a democracy standpoint. He's not interested in collective decision-making in a formal sense. He's more interested in things like information markets and other informal ways that we aggregate information. So it's a very different approach from mine. Uh, another very different approach from mine would be the approach uh, of Scott Page. Again, you've seen Scott Page, uh, who has a book called The Difference, and he looks at the way that uh, deliberative processes can be structured in such a way that you, know, you can bring to bear different people and they have their different uh, uh, pieces of the puzzle that they are able to fit together and that they can come together so as to maximally solve whatever problem you put in front of them. And that's one that emphasizes the, the interaction between people of different types. How can you, what happens when you bring them together? Not just, you just have them there. You have to actually bring them together and have something happen. My approach is a little bit different and it looks more just at the question of just what can you imagine a diverse group of people bringing to the table and how would you capture just in general what a diverse group of people might bring to the table and how that might that contribute to decision making. So the technique I'm using to try to get at this in my own research is by uh, looking at the literature around a result called the Condorcet-Jury Theorem. Condorcet-Jury Theorem is a fundamental mathematical result in decision-making. I'm just going to run through it very briefly. There's a good chance some of you are, are familiar with it, but just so we're all on the same page about what the Condorcet-Jury Theorem involves. It goes back to the Marquis de Condorcet in the uh, late 18th century. And Condorcet provided this fascinating little model where he shows uh, says the following, okay, let's imagine we've got a committee that's going to make a decision by majority rule, uh, and each member has a certain probability of being correct. Uh, and that probability is better than half, you know. I do better to ask your opinion than to toss a coin. It's a very minimal condition of competence of the people you're asking. So each of these people is correct with probability P greater than a half. Probabilities are independent. The probability that one person is correct is independent of the probability anyone else is correct. 
And then you see there's a very interesting result you get. The majority is going to be right with probability higher than p. The majority is more likely to be right than any one individual. This could be a somewhat uh, surprising result. And even more interestingly, some would say, um, as the committee gets larger and larger and larger, the probability that the majority is right goes to 1. Uh, the probability of a very large group, even if each of the individual members is only just barely better than 50-50 at getting the right answer, you know, 0.501 or something, really tiny probability. If the committee gets large enough, they're almost certainly right. They're close to omniscient, the larger the group gets. And there are people who've tried to draw a lot on this result, for example, to understand things like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. If you've ever read Rousseau's social contract, he has a famous passage in there where he says that, you know, uh, if I am asked about my view on the general will and I am outvoted, it means that I am mistaken about what the general will was. And there's a sense of, well, how do you make sense of that? And the Condorcet jury theorem says, well, maybe that could be true. If you were asked, what's the general will, and there's a correct answer to what the general will is, and you ask a majority of people, if you're outvoted, there's a good chance the reason you're outvoted is because you were wrong. Uh, and if the majority is sufficiently large, it starts to even look assuming the assumptions hold, of course, starts to look a little bit like Vox Populi, Vox Dei. When you talk about difference, you haven't specified in what form. Mm -hmm. You know, so you might say you're straight, fall short. Mm -hmm. Presumably, it doesn't matter. We don't want stupid people. So there's an argument for saying you took out stupid Well, this is, this is, you know, Condorcet himself said the problem with this applying this theorem in practice was that uh, he thought if you enlarge the decision-making body, you get this result, so for a given competence level and the group, and you can show that this holds for statistical averages, by the way. You don't just need the, a the actual competence level to be always over half. You can do it if the average competence level is under certain conditions. We could get into that if you like. But the problem is, he said, you expand the group, the average competence level is surely going to go down. You keep expanding and expanding the group. You're going to be bringing, you have to bring in more and more incompetent people. And uh, those two effects are going to be fighting against each other. And at the limit, if you get under 50%, uh, if the probability in any individual is right is under 50%, then the probability the majority will choose right is always less than the individual probability, and it goes to zero for a very large uh, population. Uh, so you're almost certainly, if, you, if you've got very incompetent people, you do well to ask a lot of them and then do the exact opposite of what they say. Uh, so you're, you know, that's, it's very true that in applying this kind of result, you would have to say, okay, uh, do I think that these people are different in ways that actually bring something else to the table? And where I'm going with this, just to flag, where I'm going with this is I'm going at the question of, okay, um, how in the world would we understand people making contrib different contributions uh, to decision-making in this kind of world. Because, uh, as I want to say, yeah, how should we compose decision-making bodies? The problem we have is how do we understand differences making a positive contribution when it looks like, well, if people were different, surely we'd want to have the best ones we could. I should flag that this, the condorcet jury theorem does do a great job of nailing our first condition of difference. Remember, we said uh, we wanted, you know, most people think when they think difference, they think, well, we need to have many voices involved. We can't just have a few, we need to have many. Well, the jury theorem all by itself says a lot about that. It says, look, here's a great reason to think that bringing many people into the decision-making process is a good thing. The problem is, uh, it doesn't really tell us much about difference, you know. Presumably, it would even hold if you had people who were all very much alike. All you need is to have some minimal condition 
that they're judging independently. They're not literally clones of each other where they're just they're ex they have the exact same thought process going on. As long as you can say in some sense they're all coming to the process with an independent point of view, then uh, the jury theorem is going to hold. There doesn't look like there's any capacity for difference to uh, make a positive contribution. The only way it looks like you could have talk about difference making a positive contribution is if some people were just better than others. And if they are better, well, you should have the better ones on the decision-making body. You should not have the, we the weaker ones. Uh, so it's hard to make sense of difference in a way that doesn't just call it boil down to better or worse. And this has real implications, I should say, for real political decision-making. There was a fascinating case uh, that went to the United States Supreme Court uh, right after the American Civil War. Uh, this was in the period when um, there was a whole de uh, debate over like, how to ensure uh, civil rights for uh, newly freed slaves who are now citizens of the United States thanks to the 14th Amendment, guaranteed citizenship rights. And there is this question of could you ex justify excluding them from juries? And uh, there was a, fam a case at the time, and the case involves a, an African-American who had a, a, a an all-white jury that convicted him, and he appeals to the Supreme Court, and he says that you know uh, you should, there should have been African, a few African Americans on the jury uh, because the whites in this area are biased against African Americans. And the Supreme Court said, well, we don't actually believe you've established that, but if you did establish that, you're giving us exactly the wrong remedy. If you did establish that the white people were biased against blacks, then you should have an all-black jury. I mean, that would seem to follow if you were just saying that they were that black that that white jurors are lousy jur jurors then why have any of them on their own? There's no contribution to having white and black jurors coming together on that story. There's no way of saying that they're each contributing something. No, it's just one of them is just wrong because of the various kinds of uh, racist practices or other things that are going wrong in their heads. So there's no, not really a story yet of how we could say that difference could ever be good. Uh, it looks like to the extent people are different, there's going to be one type we're going to want on and we're just going to want to have lots of them. So, we're not yet at a story to make sense of this idea of difference. So we've got this naive answer that says, okay, difference means put the best ones on. Uh, but so if we're going to talk about difference, we have to say, maybe difference doesn't translate into just better or worse. And how could we make sense of the idea that difference doesn't translate into better or worse? Well, I'm going to talk about a modeling strategy that I'm employing to try to get a little bit of a handle on this. Uh, my results are somewhat preliminary. I'm try, you know, trying to expand upon it now, but I'll try to run through the uh, results for you. So I'm going to think about bias and this idea of bias, and I'm going to try to do so in a way that's a little bit different from the way that people normally talk about bias. Bias is normally interpreted uh, as meaning something that's, you know, just naturally bad. It's like a biased statistical estimator is one that, you know, it's just systematically misleading. You don't want that. But it's possible to think about bias perhaps in somewhat more neutral terms. So here would be a somewhat more neutral understanding of bias. You can imagine a group of people who have to make a certain kind of decision. Uh, so they've got two options in front of them. Let's say the decision is do we convict a juror or not. They've got two options. They convict him or they acquit him. And you might say, well, in a sense, they've got, there are two different kind of tasks they could have, they have to perform. In one sense, well, they want to acquit the innocent 
and they want to convict the guilty. So it's like two different tasks. The only problem is they don't know which task they're performing. They're not sure which, when they're making the decision, uh, is this an acquit the, guilt, uh, acquit the innocent task or a convict the guilty task? I'm not quite sure. Um, but it could be that a juror is much better at one of the two tasks than the other. It could be that a juror is really good at figuring out when someone's guilty. If the guy, they're guilty, oh, they're going to nail it. They're going to see that person's guilty. But if they're innocent, they might not have as much luck figuring out that the person is innocent. So another way of putting it might be, and again, this, this is not meant to convey any kind of fundamental irrationality. For example, it could just mean that due to their experiences, their past life or what have you, they uh, are sensitive to certain types of cues that to them say, oh, that guy's guilty. And they don't have comparable cues that signal to them, well, that, 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 that person's innocent. So that kind of a juror, I'm going to say, is biased towards guilt. And you could have someone who has a comparable bias towards innocent. Someone who, when, the per the, when they're presented with an innocent defendant, they say, oh yeah, that one's innocent. But they have a harder time picking up on when someone's guilty. They don't have the same clear signal saying to them, guilt. So this gives us a natural way, I'm thinking about, of uh, thinking about uh, opposing biases. And just from the way I've stated it, it should be plain that we might want to have some of both in decision-making. You know, if we have to have a decision like uh, trying a defendant, we might very well want to have some jurors who are biased towards innocent and some jurors who are biased towards guilt. That we might, you know, in some optimal kind of mix. That might be the best way of getting the best possible decision. Uh, you could put this in statistical terms. You could say some jurors are better at avoiding type 1 error than type 2 error and vice versa. You know, it, uh, it, it might be, you could imagine that as like a, a couple of jurors being a bunch of different statistical devices that you're drawing upon uh, in a way that might be, lead to an optimal form of decision making. And there's a lot of literature on the subject which I'm going to just sort of lightly dance over. If you want me to go back to it, I'm happy to do that. So let me lay out the model. I'll lay out what the model, what my model is. Then I'm going to, you know, dance really fast through my, past my, uh, my various results. And if you want to like actually walk, talk about the math, we can talk about the math, but I'm assuming you don't want to hear about the math right now. Uh, instead, I'll just sort of give you the, I'll give you the punchline after I lay out what the model does to give you an idea of what's going on. So we start with a model. We've got a model of decision making. Uh, they've got, uh, there's a committee that's going to have to choose between two options, A and B. A is ex ante, the right choice, probability greater than one half, you know, uh, greater than equal to one half. Uh, we don't know w whether this is one of those cases where uh, A is, is the right option or B is the right option, but we know that ex ante is probably A. The committee's got to make a decision, and if they get the right choice, we're assuming they're going to get a utility of zero. Uh, avoiding a mistake is basically the baseline. Now, the problem is there are two different types of mistakes they can make. Uh, in the jury, they could convict the innocent or they could acquit the guilty two different types of mistakes. And we might not value those mistakes equally. We might say it's worse to convict an innocent defendant than to acquit an innocent one. In fact, we acquit uh, a guilty one, I'm sorry. Uh, that's actually usually the case. We normally assume that. Uh, and so we will reflect that by saying, okay, uh, there's a cost to pay if the committee reaches the wrong decision. And the cost is going to be, uh, we can allow it to vary any which way we like. We can say, if you choose B when A is right, 
There's a utility loss equals E sub A. Choose A when B is right. There's a utility loss E sub B. And we can vary those any which way we like. We can make them be equal. We can make them both be uh, different sizes. We can make them small. We can make them large. We can do whatever we like with them. And so it should be clear from this that, you know, our goal is in a sense to maximize group utility, uh, which is uh, realized by trying to make the best possible decisions, adjusting for the fact that we care about avoiding certain kinds of errors more than others. Okay? We've got an n-member committee. It's an odd number. We like odd numbers because we can avoid all those nasty ties and things like that. We hate ties when we're doing the math. Uh, we're going to talk about majority rule and some other work I talk about other decision-making rules, but we'll talk about majority rule. Sincere voting, everyone just votes on the basis of their information they have available to them. It's a minor point for our purposes, but we can talk about why that can be a problem later if people want to know. Because it's not an innocent assumption, it turns out. Sometimes people don't vote according to their own personal belief about who's best based on the information they have. That can screwy things like that can happen. Uh, we're going to cons constitute our committee for, by drawing off of two groups. Let's keep it really simple. We can divide the whole population into two groups, X and Y. They could be, you know, uh, working class and bourgeoisie. Uh, they can be Protestants and Catholics. They can be men and women. They can be any group that you like, where you th have reason to believe that both groups might be making a contribution to decision making in the way I described, you know, where you can imagine them both having different types of, uh, of, uh, of bias. Obviously, this kind of model would not be applicable if you don't think that's the case. If you think, again, if you think as in the racist juror case, some jurors are just bad jurors, uh, then you don't have any case for including them. But the assumption here is, again, you think you have two groups where they both might have something to contribute. Okay? Well, that would be the next complication that we would like, I'd like to be able to introduce. Uh, the tricky thing about allowing more than true groups is that with two groups, it's very easy to talk about things like equal and opposite biases. That has a sensible meaning when you've got two options. You say, okay, some are biased towards this option, some are biased towards the other. If you're wanting to introduce more groups, in effect, you're introducing a spectrum of biases between those two. Uh, and that's a rather tricky thing to model. I haven't quite figured out how to get a handle on how to do that. That would be the logical next step uh, to take here. Um, this is sort of going from the, uh, yeah, from the, uh, the simplest version in there. But yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Our group members have equal and opposite biases. So our X members are very good at selecting A. They do so with probability Q. They're not as good at selecting B when B is the correct option. They do that with probability P. Q is larger than P. And Y members do the exact opposite. Y, are pretty, y members are pretty good at picking out uh, B when B is the right option, but they're not so good at picking out A. So they have equal and opposite biases. You can do the math with, without equal and opposite biases. It turns out to become very hard to get generalizable results of any intuitive significance. If the biases are equal and opposite, the results are actually reasonably straightforward to interpret. Without that assumption, uh, you get this really, really ugly equation that doesn't have any kind of intuitive meaning uh, or any kind of intuitive results. So I'm trying to figure out what the right way to do it, handle with that is. So at the moment, we're going to say we have equal and opposite biases of our groups. The size of the group? 
Uh, right. Well, I'm assuming we're, that we can, X and Y are both large enough that we can pick as many as we want for our decision. We could have an all X member group committee if we wanted. We could have an all Y member committee if we wanted. We could split it almost 50-50. Uh, any composition we like. Yeah, they're, they're like two populations that we're doing draws from. And it doesn't matter for these purposes. For these purposes, any X member is interchangeable with any, X, any other X member. You know, uh, they're for decision-making purposes, they're all the same in the two groups. Correct. And so the question for us, you know, given that we fixed that we've got a majority rule, let's say we fixed our deci committee's decision-making size, uh, the question is how many of each of the N committee, uh, how many committee members do we want to have from each group? Well, we've got N total members. How many do we want to have from each group? Uh, and then there's a lot of math, which I'm going to sort of dance very lightly through. Here's some graphs. Isn't that cute? Let's talk, get skipped sketch to, skip to what does all that prove? Trust me, that's like subliminal messages or whatever. You just got saw, saw a proof thrown, thrown in front of you. Um, we can talk about how the math works if people like, but that's, I'll sort of cut to the, uh, the punchline. Here are some of the things that we learn if we try to figure out the optimal committee composition. Here's one thing we learn. Um, you have to have at least minimally sensible competence levels. That's what this says. So in order to have difference make a difference. Uh, so here's a very, very bizarre scenario uh, that this equation is meant to capture. Here's a really bizarre scenario you can imagine. And it's consistent with everything I've said about the model so far. Imagine we have this weird scenario where the jurors who are biased towards guilt, they are really good at picking out a guilty uh, defendant. If they're guilty, they'll, they'll vote to convict. But you know what? They're terrible at figuring out who's innocent. They're so terrible that if you uh, put an innocent, uh, innocent uh, defendant in front of them, they're more likely to convict the innocent defendant than they are the guilty defendant. That's how bad they are at picking out innocent defendants. And let's imagine that the jurors who are biased towards innocence have the exact opposite. You know, they might be really good if, at figuring out when someone really is innocent. If they're innocent, oh, they'll say he's, they'll vote to acquit. But they're even more likely to vote to acquit if the person's really guilty. It sounds very perverse, and you're absolutely right. It's a very, very, uh, these would be very um, profoundly biased jurors. But what's interesting for our purposes here is that, interestingly enough, in that situation, difference is terrible. Difference always makes things worse. Difference is a really bad idea. And the reason is very straightforward. The reason is very straightforward. When you've got jurors who are, have this crazy kind of bias, uh, then if you confront those jurors with the wrong type of defendant, you're going to get a disaster. It's going to be a total disaster. So if you confront a jury that's full of guilty-prone uh, jurors with an innocent defendant, it's going to be a disaster. Confront a, ju uh, a jury full of innocence-prone jurors with a guilty person, it's going to be a disaster. So what you have to do is you ask, you ask yourself, okay, which disaster do I hate more? Which, which, which catastrophe am I trying harder to avoid? Uh, figure out which one that is, and then stack the jury to avoid that one. Uh, you want to avoid uh, convicting the innocent, then stack it with innocent-prone jurors, jurors who are biased towards innocence. And you're maximizing your chance of getting the other mistake, but you just have to decide which of those two mistakes is worse. And it turns out, given the math, that's the best thing you can do. You can never benefit from difference under these kind of crazy parameters. So a minimal competence level is required in order for 
uh, difference to make any kind of positive contribution. And one way of capturing that, we, that's assured, that kind of minimal competence level is assured as long as both P and Q are greater than a half. In other words, if even the jurors who are biased towards guilt are okay at figuring out who's innocent, you know, as long as they're okay at it, they don't have to be great, as long as they're, you know, at least moderately competent at that, then we're not in this kind of crazy scenario and we can, uh, we can imagine that difference might have a contribution to make. But it turns out these minimal conditions of, ration, of uh, rationality on the part of our jurors, they're not enough to ensure that difference makes a contribution. Even if you have these moderate, reasonable-looking uh, jurors, let's say uh, the, guilt, the guilty-prone jurors are 70% likely to convict the guilty, and let's say they're 60% likely to acquit the innocent, you know, that might sound like a reasonable juror, you know, doesn't sound like a terrible juror to put on a jury. Um, but even then, difference isn't necessarily going to be guaranteed to give you good results. I mean, you might have a, uh, a jury that has a, uh, a variety of different jurors on it. It might do okay, but it might still be the, the case that the jury benefits or has the highest probability of being correct when it's a homogeneous jury, when you've stacked it all with members of X or with members of Y. Might still be the case. Correct. Heterogeneity is not, is not homogeneity, not all X or not all Y. That's correct. So heterogeneity is, is would, would you ever have a reason to mix uh, or have a positive reason to mix? And the answer is sometimes when you have this minimal condition satisfied, but not always. There will be many cases, and I'll just flash up the, uh, what the conditions look like. Here are some conditions when an all X and an all Y juror, uh, uh, member jury would in fact be better. Again, I want to stress, this doesn't mean that the heterogeneous to the jury will be a disaster. It just means if you're solely concerned about maximizing the chance of being, of, uh, of uh, uh, maximizing expected utility for the group, uh, heterogeneity might not be the right way to go. Uh, let's see. And this is all just a, a uh, an interesting uh, other facet. I won't talk about Christian List's result, but it's an interesting way of thinking about what the optimal committee composition will look like. You know, I've said, okay, sometimes heterogeneity is a good idea. Sometimes we're going to want to have people from two different groups with equal and opposite biases in decision making. Now, what will the ideal committee composition look like? If I ask you, okay, uh, if you ask me, how should we structure this jury to optimize decision making? Well, it's going to turn out that the optimal committee composition is going to have a funny property. The funny property is you might intuitively think that the right way of specifying uh, the way to make decisions is to say, well, what we should do is we should have two-thirds of the jury be X members and one-third be Y members. You might think that's the optimal way to specify uh, an optimal committee composition. Turns out that's wrong. Turns out that's not what specifying the optimal committee looks like. You know how we would specify it? What we do is we'd say, you know what the optimal committee composition is going to be? Put 10 more X members on than Y members. Put 10 more X members than Y members. It turns out that if you, for these parameters, all the different parameters I've run through, once you calculate the best way to make the decision, you're going to have a, get a result like have 10 more X members than Y members, and that's going to be independent of the size of the group. 
doesn't matter whether the group has 11 members, 101 members, 1,001, 10,001. What will be the optimal composition? 10 more X members than Y members. The absolute difference in the group sizes matters, not the relative size, not the, no, not the proportions. Proportions make no difference, or well, they make a difference, obviously. But they're not going to tell you the right way to structure it. The right way is to have an absolute number of, of more from one group and more from the other. And I can talk about the intuition of why that's uh, true, if people like. Basically, the idea is that in a certain sense, when you have people who are with equal and opposite biases, if you've got some from each group on the, in the uh, decision-making body, they, they kind of cancel each other out. In a, certain sort of, in a certain way. So the only ones that kind of count in terms of optimizing are the ones that haven't been canceled out. So if you had 101 jurors and um, you know, uh, 40 of them are from one group, uh, 45 of them are from one group, 45 are from the other, and 11 uh, are up for grabs, uh, those 45 from each group kind of cancel each other out. So we don't, we're not going to worry about them. We're just going to worry about that 11 at the margin. Do we want them all to be X's or do we want them all to be Y's or things like that? So that's kind of the intuition. It's a kind of a funny result. Uh, again, think back to my description of what difference is and the way people think about difference. Uh, people often think about differences involving proportionality. Uh, they want proportions of various time. Oh, we want to have you know 50% women on the committee or something like that. These results suggest um, if you're talking about optimizing the quality of the decision, uh, the proportions are not the right way to go, or they're not the way to talk if you want to get the decision right. So there's a bunch of different directions I've been taking this. I won't talk about some of this because it gets kind of ugly. What instead I'm going to do is just jump to the, back to talking about difference. I'll talk briefly about difference, and I think I'll end about just a couple minutes early, so hopefully we can get in a little bit more discussion. Careful now. So what do we learn about difference from this? Well, we've got some support, some limited support for the idea that difference matters. We have our Condorcet jury theorem, which tells us that often it's a really good idea to have many people involved in decision making. And we've now got some modifications to the Condorcet jury theorem, which tell us that different voices can make a contribution. Not always will, but can. It will depend a lot on the nature of the decisions, the specific parameters, things like um, what kinds of insights do I think the different groups will offer are going to matter? Uh, do I think that they're going to make a contribution to a particular type of decision? And what kind of contributions will they, will they be? For example, might a certain type of juror be very good at helping us to avoid one particular type of mistake? Might they be very good at helping us to avoid convicting the innocent, for example? Uh, that's going to be the kind of things that we're going to have to ask when we ask, okay, which groups might be relevant and uh, under what circumstances will they be relevant. But even once we do all that, at the end of the day, they might not produce an argument for diversity or an argument for heterogeneity. It might still result in a, a, a vote for homogeneity. So it doesn't always work, this case for difference. Moreover, this case for different is at odds with the tr traditional story in at least one very important respect. And I've already flagged it very briefly, but I want to talk about it a little bit more. And that's about this uh, idea of difference, sometimes described as the idea of descriptive representation. Uh, this is an idea that, as I've said, has three components to it. Many voices, many different voices, and proportionately many voices. 
And one of the things that you notice about everything I've said so far is I have said almost nothing, in fact, I have said nothing at all, I think, about just how many X members or how many Y members are out there. I don't know how many people there are in these two groups that I think might be contributing. And therefore, that's going to be kind of irrelevant to figuring out what's going to be the optimal committee for making a certain type of decision. This is at odds with our traditional ima uh, uh, image that we have of descriptive representation, which says we need proportionality. We want groups to be represented in proportional numbers to their presence in the population. That's going to be very important. And this suggests, well, actually, that might not be so important. And I think that there are intuitions you can draw upon to suggest that this makes sense. You know, there's some intuitions that say, oh, you want to have a jury that looks like Ireland or something like that. But there are other intuitions that suggest, well, depending on the type of case, you might not want proportionality. Uh, imagine, for example, that uh, X and Y consisted of, let's say, on the one hand, heterosexual jurors, and on the other hand, uh, gay or lesbian uh, or jurors. It's a possibility. Maybe uh, uh, on a particular type of decision, gay and lesbian uh, decision makers would have something special to contribute. But they're a really small proportion of the population. You know, they're 3%. Uh, is 3% the optimal number to make good decisions uh, about decisions where you would expect gay and lesbian voices to have an important part to say in the decision? Maybe not. Uh, maybe you'd actually want to have, for a certain type of decision, many more gays or lesbians involved. Or it's possible that, gay, uh, that being gay or lesbian is irrelevant to the particular type of decision, in which case, if there's less than 3, if there's 0%, maybe that doesn't matter. It might depend on the type of decision and the, and the evaluation of what kind of contribution the specific jurors can make. Now, there might be other kinds of reasons to be concerned about proportionality. Uh, one of the things I'm hoping to do in this ongoing research I'm doing, there's a mathematical side to this research, but there's also a sort of philosophical side to this research. And the philosophical side is kind of just interrogating in general this ideal of descriptive representation and saying, okay, can, is this case based on just competence of decision-making bodies, ensuring the best possible decisions? Is it a case based on more rights-based considerations about just ensuring equal rights to all groups? Is it an opportunity-based argument? What's the argument? And there's all kinds of different arguments that I think get mushed together. And one of my goals in this research is to try to disentangle them. And so the main thing I'm trying to do in this research is to disentangle the particular strand that's just concerned about how do I get the best possible decision I can? How do I get the best possible decision I can in terms of just being right? And if you look at how does the difference contribute to that specific part of the decision-making process, the answer, I think, is got to be a very mixed one and one that's somewhat at odds with the traditional story about descriptive representation being a good thing. So many voices, yes. Many different voices, sometimes. Proportionally many different voices, not necessarily valuable for this reason, at least. So why don't I wrap it up there? And 